Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. But we are in 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. So let's begin once again with the time of prayer as we bow our hearts. Lord God, we, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for your presence. Thank you for each and every one of your blessings. Thank you, Lord, from, for all the things you've protected us from, even those things we're not aware of. But, Lord, you kept us. We pray over this night, the remainder of this night, that you'll be glorified. I pray for the gift of teaching. I pray, Lord, that I would decrease and you increase and that only you will be glorified tonight. And may you bless my brothers and sisters and each and every one of us who are, who are listening to your word. We pray that they'll receive and all of us will receive a timely word and we'll all be open to the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First Samuel chapter 5, the title of the study is Our God is Greater. Our God is greater. Amen. Now, the topic of many conversations that we hear amongst our friends, amongst our relatives, they, they center around who is the greatest. Who is greater than any other person? Who is greater than any other thing or what is greater than any other thing? And we may have conversations about who's the greatest boxer. Some say Muhammad Ali. (laughs) Some say Sugar Ray Robinson or Floyd Mayweather Jr. or somebody else, Rocky Marciano. They talk about the greatest football players. They mention people like Tom Brady and Barry Sanders and Joe Montana, the greatest basketball players, some argue over whether it's Michael Jordan or LeBron or Kobe Bryant or whoever or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. People argue over who's the greatest singer. And then you get to the food part, and this is where it gets serious. What what is the greatest hamburger? And then people start having debates. No, I like this. I like In-N-Out. I like this burger. Ready to fight over a burger. No, they're not. I'm just... But they talk about these things. What is the greatest hot dog? The best barbecue ribs. In fact, years ago when my second oldest son was playing basketball, he was on one of those traveling teams, uh, we went to another state, and I don't want to mention the state because I don't want to offend anybody in case you're from there. But my father-in-law was with us, and we were going around trying to find the best barbecue. And we were trying to figure out if it was better than anything we've tasted, and, and, and it just wasn't. In fact, the thing that ended up being the best that I ever tasted was the catfish out of all things. And I don't really eat a whole lot of catfish, but that was the best catfish I've had, but not the best barbecue ribs. But we always talk about the greatest. What is the greatest? But when this argument pertains to the God of the Bible, there is really no debate. But do all people hold this view that there's really no debate? No, 
Of course, we know that not everybody believed that the God of the Bible is the greatest. And tonight, if you hold this view that he is, then I assure you this study will confirm it. And so that brings us to verse 1 in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and it says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house or temple of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now, remember, the Israelites were defeated by the Philistines, their enemy. And remember, the the ark of God was captured and it was brought from the battleground at Ebenezer to Ashdod. And remember, the ark of the covenant was not God. We know that, but it was representative of God's presence. And so the Philistines captured it and defeated the Israelites at the same time as a part of their judgment. God allowed that to happen. But now in these two verses, it does mention the place Ashdod. And Ashdod, by the way, was a major Philistine city, and it was near the Mediterranean Sea west from Jerusalem. In fact, it was one of the five major Philistine cities. Now, the Ark of God in Ashdod was set by the idol Dagon in Dagon's house or temple. And Dagon was the main or the principal deity or little g-god of the Philistine people. He was considered either the god of the sea, grain, or the little g-god of storm. Now, supposedly, Dagon was the father of Baal. And we see that a lot, and some people pronounce it Baal. But supposedly, Dagon was that other idol god's father. Now, in verse 3, it says, and when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, it says, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and set it in its place again, they being the Philistine people who lived in Ashdod. Now, now instead of taking the hint, because obviously God did that, but instead of taking the hint, the Philistines they, they took that idol that was bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. Again, the Ark represented the presence of God. And then they put it back where it was. And I mentioned that, and that stood out to me because every now and then, people set up their idols again. Idols that are proven to not work. Idols that are proven to not help or bring satisfaction to people's lives. And it's proven to be bad in comparison to the God of the Bible, in comparison to Jesus, useless. But yet and still, people set up those idols again. They just pick them back up and set them right back on the throne of their lives, of the thrones of their hearts. And when they arose early the next morning in verse 4, There was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now, this time it says the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold or doorway. 
and only Dagon's torso or the trunk was left of it. And therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread or walk on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now, even after this even more clear sign that Dagon is not who they thought it was and that Dagon is inferior to God, even though there's a more clearer sign because now the head is chopped off and the palms are chopped off. They, they still notice in the scriptures, they still had Dagon's temple or his house set up. And on top of that, they created a superstition out of what happened to their idol God. And the superstition, of course, being that, that now they don't step on the threshold of Dagon's house or temple until that day, until the day that these scriptures were written. So they still have remnants of this idol God. And the question for us is what remnant of our idols remain? What remnant of the idols some of us may have put in our lives are, are still up? Maybe it's a physical object like this little statue or whatever it was. Or maybe that idol or the remnant of the idol is, is, is some type of person, some type of individual you had a relationship with and God stepped in and said no that person's not good you're dating this person's not good and so God steps in and breaks it off but but yet and still you're worshiping that person so to speak you're holding on to a remnant of that relationship and you're not letting go of what God has destroyed you're still holding on to a remnant or or, or maybe it's riches some people are holding on to or some type of false belief or ideology or maybe some type of theory. And so many people even today reveal the God or the gods they worship through their strongholds. And we're going to talk about strongholds just a little bit because it's not what many of us think they are. You see, these strongholds that people have that reveal what kind of idol gods they have in their lives, again, they need to come down. They need to be torn down. And what is a stronghold? Well, literally, a stronghold is a fortified place or a fortress. So you want to keep the literal meaning in mind. It's a fortified place or fortress. And what, do, what does a fortress do? It protects something. And so figuratively, strongholds are the arguments and they're the reasons that a person would use to strengthen or protect their beliefs, their opinions, and their worldviews. And what is a person's worldview? It is the way they see the world. So if they were wearing some figurative glasses, I'm wearing literal glasses, but if they were wearing glasses, it will be the way that they see the world. It will be the way that they define everything. And so as Bible-believing Christians, our worldview should be based on God's worldview, which is what we get from the Bible, and the Holy Spirit works that through us. But some people have these strongholds, these arguments and, and things that they're and these reasonings that they're using to protect their false belief systems. But the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, for those of us 
who are in the spiritual warfare and we're trying to tear down um, arguments. We're trying to st- tear down strongholds. It tells us that we're not to use fleshly means or worldly means. See, it says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in who? In God for pulling down strongholds. And notice in verse 5, it kind of defines what the strongholds are. It says, casting down the arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so we want to use the word of God and we want to use prayer by the power of the Holy Spirit to cast down arguments, to cast down opinions that go against the truth that we find in the word of God. We want to cast down opinions and arguments that get in the way of people seeing Jesus more clearly. I like how the New Living Translation reads, Uh, In verse 5, it says, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and we teach them, that is the thoughts, to obey Christ. But again, we use the word of God. We use prayer in the power of the Holy Spirit because notice it says that they're mighty in God. And so, again, those strongholds, they reveal the arguments people use, the reasonings people use to protect a certain way that they believe about something, whatever it is. Again, it shows what God they're really worshiping. And so we're in a spiritual warfare. So we're not to use carnal methods. In verses 6 through 8, it says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged or he devastated them and struck them with tumors, he being, again, the Lord. Struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon, our God. And therefore, in verse 8, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords, all the rulers of the Philistines, and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. And so they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. And so what are these tumors? Well, you get different opinions about this based on what commentator you read about or, you know, whatever preacher you listen to. But, of course, there are some things in common. You see, some people say that these were growths on their skin or they were possibly hemorrhoids. And some say, here's somebody laughing, and some say they were tumors of the groin. Now, it's possible that this was a type of bubonic plague or infection spread by rats. And we, and we get that view, and I lean towards that view because of 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses uh, 4 and 5, because it tells us in those verses that they were to make some golden images of rats in the tumors. And so there's some type of connection there. And so I lean towards that way. There's probably some kind of side effect from the bubonic plague. But these Philistine rulers, they, they decided to send the ark of God to Gath. So the ark went from, if you're following along, as far as what place it's moving to and, and, and moving from, The ark went from Ebenezer to Ashdod to Gath. Now, some of you who are Bible scholars, you you may have heard of Gath. 
because Gath was yet another major Philistine city, and it was the home of the giant warrior Goliath, which we'll see later. And it was about 12 miles from Ashdod. So notice this. They got tumors, possibly from the bubonic plague. But instead of responding in a positive way to this judgment brought upon them by God, notice they tried to push that Ark of the Covenant, which represents his presence, away to another place, to Gath. And so, yeah, once again, they didn't respond positively, which would have meant that they would have had some type of godly sorrow. They would have had godly sorrow that would have said, well, this is the true and the living God. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. And he's shown himself to be stronger than Dagon. And he has poured his wrath upon us. And so we're going to have godly sorrow, feel sorry that we've sinned against this holy and powerful God. And the Bible says that godly sorrow produces repentance. And repentance is a change of mind or you change direction from sin. So instead of trying to change from sin and turning towards God, they, they push God away. And I know to many of you tonight that sounds very familiar because that's what a bunch of people are doing today. Oh, God is allowing some things in their lives and bringing judgment in some people's lives and possibly in countries and, and people are not responding the way God would have them to. You see, God loves them and he loves them so much that, of course, we know that he gave his only begotten son, but he would rather for people to come to him, to repent and come to him instead of them facing judgment. But oh, people today, even still, they, they would rather push God away. And so it was in verse 9, after they carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So we see again, God is judging those who oppose him. And we see also in that verse, in verse 9, that he is not a respecter of persons. God is not showing favoritisms here, whether you're small or great or young or old, whether you're rich or famous or a CEO, you could be a janitor, whatever it is, black, white, American, whatever the nationality, God is no respecter of persons. You know, what God is concerned about is have you received Jesus? Have you received my son? And I tell you what, when people reject Jesus, when they reject the only way to God, when they reject the only way to heaven, when they reject the cure to their sin sickness, what they're doing is calling God a liar. They're saying, God, the Father, they're telling God, the Father, I don't receive, I don't believe your testimony about your son. Because remember, the Father said, and we see it more than once in the scriptures, in the New Testament, what he said about Jesus, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased every step of the way. And so to reject whom God is pleased with, the only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to turn away from that salvation that is offered through him, through his name, is yes, to call God a liar and people who oppose that, people who oppose God, who reject Jesus. Judgment Day is coming. 
And once again, he is no respecter of persons. I don't care how good you look. He is no respecter of persons. Verses 10 through 11. It says, therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. They're playing hot potato. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to his own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy. It was severe there. So once again, if you're trying to track where it's going, it went from Ebenezer to Ashdod to Gath and now to Ekron. Once again, another major Philistine city. And so the five key cities of the Philistines, by the way, if you're interested, and you'll see this later in chapter 6, were Ashdod, Gaza, which isn't mentioned in the study, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And each of those cities had a ruler or lord. The scriptures tell us in verse 12, and the men who did not die, they were stricken with the tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The city at this point being Ekron. And so the men who remained alive, they cried out because of their pain. They cried out because of their suffering. But one thing they didn't do, they didn't cry out to the Lord in repentance. They didn't cry out to the Lord and say, I I receive you to be my God. My God, Dagon, isn't working for me. He's inferior. I accept you. They didn't cry out in that way. They just cried out. There's many people right now, they're shaking their clenched fist at God. Many of them will claim that they don't even believe in God, but Once an illness or once a a tragedy comes into their lives, the the first one they blame is God. So why are you blaming God and you just said you don't believe in God? And so they're clenching their fist at him. Or maybe they're just complaining about their suffering, but not repenting, not turning to him. You know, people should take advantage, of course, of their opportunity that God has given them instead of complaining against him, instead of just crying out, instead of cursing him, instead of clenching their fists and shaking it at him, instead of trying to challenge him. God would love for them to be a part of his family. But people just complaining against God and clenching their fists against him and still refusing to repent This is actually going to be the attitude of many people during the tribulation period. No, right now, I know times are bad, but this is not the tribulation period. Oh, it's heading that way. We see things being set up for the tribulation period, but I firmly believe that the church won't be here. The church starting at uh, Pentecost, that's the birth of the church. The rapture being the end of the church age. We'll be taken out of here. We'll meet the Lord in the air. We'll forever be with the Lord. But on earth, 
there'll be a time of tribulation that the world has not seen. And in the Old Testament, I believe it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob speaking of the nation of Israel. You know, I just want to show you something in Revelation 16, just so you can see the attitude of some of these people. Just refusing to repent, being upset with God instead of coming to God. And by the way, what we see in Revelation 16 is during the second half of the tribulation period, which lasts seven years. And so in that last three and a half years, you have what you call the seven bowls of judgment. And these bowls contain God's wrath that he's going to pour upon a Christ rejecting earth. And so here we see how people are going to react. It says, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Oh, we see saw that in the Old Testament. We see it today and we'll see the same type of attitude we see here in these scriptures during the tribulation period. And so people will rather hold on to their God. They'd rather hold on to their view. They would rather hold on to their way than to repent, than to surrender to the Lord and, and to give him glory. They would rather do that than to find true peace and true joy. And so, yes, these Philistines set up the Ark of the Covenant by way of reminder in the house of this idol god, Dagon. And perhaps it was a representation in their minds when they did that, that Dagon was greater than the God of the Bible. Oh, I defeated these people and these people worship Yahweh. These, these people worship the God of this Ark. We defeated them and so we're going to bring the Ark the representation of their God's presence into the temple of our God, Dagon. And it shows, once again, to them that, hey, maybe our God, little g God, is greater. But see, in this lesson, and we know personally in our lives, that the God of the Bible has shown himself to be superior. He has shown himself to be greater. The God of the Bible is not just another God. The God of the Bible is not just a collectible to set aside or to set next to some other God in any temple or in your life. See, the scriptures teach us that there is folly, there is foolishness in worshiping inferior gods or these false or these idol gods. See, Psalm Uh, 135 verses 15 through 18, it says that the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. These idols have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. In verse 18, those who make these idols are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. Get that? People who make these idol gods, people who set idol gods up in their lives, people who trust in their false or idol gods, 
they become like them. For example, these idols, they cannot speak. And these people who become like these idol gods, they don't speak biblical truth. You see, these idols, they, they cannot see. And, and those who make them and those who trust in these idol gods, they have no spiritual sight or spiritual discernment. You see, these idols that can't hear, that, that some people trust in, that some people make and set up in their lives. Oh, these people, they won't be able to understand spiritual truth. And they don't. See, these idols that don't have breath, people who make them, set them up in their lives and trust in these idols that don't have breath, don't have life in them. Those who trust in them, they have no spiritual life or spiritual breath, if you will. And not every idol worshiper, by the way, has a silver, gold, or wooden idol. Not everyone has that, so there's some people who may be listening to this message and thinking, oh, I don't have an idol God. I don't have any carved image made of gold, silver, or wood set up. But as mentioned earlier, some could worship maybe their careers or riches or people, or maybe just an image, nothing physical, but an image in their minds of how God should be. Oh, God is love. So he'll allow us to live any way we want to. God is love. But they're leaving out the part that God is a God of justice. They're leaving out the part that God, that the God in the Bible that we serve is a holy God. They're leaving out the part that says God is righteous. But they just want the part that fits them, that fits their mindset. And that is an idol God, even though it's not a physical representation, but it's a God in their mind that they have made up. You know, in Isaiah 46, verses 5 and 7, it, 5 through 7, it also mentions something about idol gods. And God asks a very serious question. He says, to whom will you liken, liken me? Who are you going to compare me with? Who are you going to make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? And speaking of the people who worship idol gods, it says they lavish or they pour out gold out of the bag. They weigh silver on the scales. They, they even hire a goldsmith and he makes it a little G, God. These people then prostrate themselves. They fall down. Yes, they worship these idol gods. And they bear, they, they lift it up on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place. And this idol God stands. And from its place, it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. See, these idols are, are made from man's own ideas. And think about that. Man, mankind has a sin nature. And so with our sin nature... Man would make up idols from our own ideas or how man understands things to be. And so from the very fact that we have a sin nature, our, our views in and of ourselves, our mindset in and of itself is going to be skewed. It's going to have some sin sprinkled into it. And that's what happens with these idols. 
Some people even worship sex to the point where that's where they find their identity. Well, my identity is not in Christ. I don't want my identity to be in Christ, some would say, because then I will have to change my idol. I want my idol to be sex, and my identity is based on my sex or my sexual preference. Idol gods. But do you want to be like what you worship? If you have an idol God in your life, do you want to be like that false God? Because the false God is useless. The false God is inconsistent. It is unstable. It's powerless. And it has no spiritual life. In fact, as you see there in Isaiah 46, you have to carry it on your shoulder. Oh, no, we may not have a physical God we're carrying on our shoulders, but we have to carry this God, some people, in our minds the way we want it. And we're carrying this God around instead of focusing on the God of the Bible. But if Jesus is your Lord and the God of the Bible is your God, oh, that's who will become more like. Or if you want to become more loving, with the true love, not the love that just says, oh, I love you. I, I accept sin any kind of way and love people to hell. That's not the godly type of love. That's not agape love. In fact, that is cruel. When you pat people on the back and tell them that their sinful lifestyle is okay, do you. Do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. That's really cruel because you're really pushing people away from all that God really has for them. You're pushing them away from their full potential that they can have in Christ. So that is really demonic to pat somebody on the back in their sinful lifestyle and tell them it's okay because the devil knows that in Christ, oh, they're going to reach their full potential. I don't want that for them. And so for people who go along with that mindset, they're helping out the devil. See, but the God of the Bible is superior. He's greater than all because what? Because first of all, he is self-existent. He didn't need anybody to create him. He didn't need to to be handed over to a goldsmith. Oh, he's self-existent. Where did God come from? He's self-existent, always existed. He does not depend on any time and space. He doesn't depend on any person or any animal or any tree or any planet, God would exist even if nothing else existed. Even if there's, there wasn't a universe, God would still exist. He's self-existent, and, and he's superior and greater than all because he's also eternal. Our God, he doesn't have a beginning or end. Our God never dies. The God that we serve is superior than all other gods, greater than all other gods, greater than us. Some of us think we're gods. Oh, he's greater because he is present in all creation, in all of his creation, which means that he's omnipresent. And you've been hearing that word from me a lot lately, but he is. He's present in his universe that he created. And there's nothing, and this is what that implies, that that there's nothing that escapes his presence. And so that should bring comfort to the believer as we speak about his omnipresence, that he's everywhere at the same time in all his creation. It should bring comfort to us that, oh, I'm never alone. My God is with me. 
should bring us comfort, but for the person who wants to live in sin, oh, it should be a scary thing. The fact that he's omnipresent, but he's superior, he's greater because no other God is self-existent, eternal, nor is any other God omnipresent. But of course, he's omniscient. He's greater than all in that way, which means that he knows all things perfectly. Get this. Not only does he know what happened in the past, not only does he know perfectly what's going on right now, but he knows perfectly what's going to happen in the future. Not only that, but God even knows the possibilities of certain choices that we would have made or could have made. He even knows possibilities. And God knows everything at once. Everything is one big now to him. And so we're looking at the past, present, and hopefully future. We're looking at it in parts. God sees everything as one big whole. Well, the past, present, and future for him, he's looking at it all at once. God cannot learn anything new. He is omnipresent. And I like that, the fact that he's omnipresent, because that means he knows everything, and he knows how to fix it. Whatever problem you're going through, You may not know how to fix it. Your friend or relative may not know how to fix it, but God certainly knows how to fix it. And he has determined how he's going to fix it in eternity. But one of these days in our lives, it's going to fall out into time. At the time he wants it to fall into. But not only is he omniscient, he's also also omnipotent, as some would say. I pronounce it omnipotent. You see, God is all-powerful, in other words. He has the power to deal, guess what, with all of our problems. He has the power to deal with all of our mistakes. I made a mistake, Lord. How can I fix this? Oh, you can't fix it, God would say, but I can fix it. Oh, you can't defeat the enemy, but I can defeat the enemy. Greater, greater is he. Greater is he. We're not great. The enemy is not the greatest. No enemy can defeat him. And so as we think about these things about God, what was that problem again you were having? What was that problem again? The problem that you complained about, the the problem you worried about, the, the problem that you have that you can't get any sleep over the problem that you have that you fight with your mate over. What's that problem again that saints fight about in the church? What, what problem is there that an omnipotent God cannot fix? Our God is superior. He's greater than all because he's self-existent, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. And our God also is holy. When you talk about holy, you talk about separateness. He is separate from and exalted above all. There is none like him. He is separate also from evil and from sin. It speaks of his purity. And because our God is holy, he'll never do wrong. And our God will never tolerate sin. Never tolerate sin. You see, there is this balance between the holy God that we serve. Yes, he's a God of justice. Sin must be punished. He's a holy God and justice and righteousness. They're they're, they're pretty much like an extension of his holiness. 
But he's also a gracious God, a merciful God. So how can he bring them into balance? How can sin be punished because he's a holy God, but yet and still be gracious and merciful to all? Where that's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus took the penalty. And so God's justice was poured out upon Jesus so that mankind will receive and enjoy the mercy and the grace of God. So, yes, we serve a holy God who's, who's pure, who always does everything right, separate from evil and sin. But I like this, that God is sovereign. Yes, he has supreme authority. Well, I know you can complain about many things in the country. We can complain about many things in the world that are not right, where you have the, the human leaders leading and they're not leading the right way. They're not representing the Bible at all in some cases. And so there's many things that we can point to when we look at man's leadership that's not right and, and things are awry, things are not in place and, and things seem hopeless right now, but understand that we serve a supreme God, a supreme ruler. He is sovereign, which means that he's always in control and you will never ever find a time that God is never on his throne. And so when we think about the sovereignty of God, that he's always in control, we find comfort in the fact that, that, yeah, he's got it. I don't have to worry. He's got it. He, he's in control in the good times, and he, he's in control of the bad times. And he's going to bring about good and his timing in his way. Scriptures even tell us that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, and guess what? To those who are the called according to his purpose. Oh, a sovereign God, only a sovereign God can bring that about. But as we think about all of these things, these attributes and descriptions of God, this superior and God, this God who's greater than all, getting still, men continue to reject him as their God and as their ruler. But guess what? There's, there's going to come a time that all will bow and acknowledge his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord, as ruler. You see, when you, when you honor the son, you honor the father. When you dishonor the son, you dishonor the father. So you can't have a religion or a belief system that says, oh, I only believe in the almighty God, but I don't accept Jesus. Because if you say that, if you do that, then you're not honoring the father. And that's not even the same God that you're worshiping. You see, that time that's going to come when all will bow and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Yes, that will bring honor to God the Father in Philippians chapter 2. I know this sounds familiar. I know this concept sounds familiar to you. And it comes from Philippians chapter 2 because that's where it tells us that the Father has highly exalted Jesus. It tells us that he's given him the name that is above every name. And it tells us that God the Father did that for Jesus because Jesus humbled himself as a man. You see, he didn't give up his deity. He didn't give up his godhood. But temporarily, Jesus set aside some of his God privileges. Temporarily. He didn't give them up. He, he temporarily 
uh, set aside some of the individual usage of his divine privileges, of his divine attributes temporarily. He didn't stop being God, but he submitted himself as a man, as a servant, as a bond servant to the will of the father. And because he did that, and he, then he went ahead and became obedient to the cross. And because he did that, it says that God the father gave him a name that is above every name. He has highly exalted him. And then it says that there's going to come a time when, when every knee is going to bow at the name of Jesus. And it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every tongue will confess, in other words, that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is a supreme ruler. All of creation will acknowledge that, that he's greater than all. And if we want God to have his way, and if we want God to produce real change in our lives, if we want God to help us to become all that he wants us to be in Christ, then the idols in our lives, they all must fall. The idols in our lives must perish. We have to get rid of those idols. We can't keep traces of those idols in our lives and then make some type of superstition out of that, just like they did in tonight's lesson. But no, we want God to produce real change in us. We want to get over those struggles that we've been going through. We're tired of living mediocre lives. We're tired of living lives where it seems like we're on the back burner to the enemy or on the back burner to the world. We want to be all that we can be in Christ. And for that to happen, yes, those idols must fall. And when those, idol, when those idols fall, then God will be able to reign supreme in our lives. That means that he must reign in our lives. And he'll get to that point where he'll reign supreme in our lives with no challengers. When, of course, we allow those idols to fall. As we ask the worship team to come to the stage. I just want you all just to be in prayer. Maybe right now you're, you, you could be struggling with something, something that you've been meaning to put away for a while. Maybe some hobby. Nothing wrong with hobbies. Nothing wrong with sports. But sometimes we can elevate those things that you would say are in a gray area. In other words, they really have no moral value to them one way or the other. And for some people, sports or hobbies or whatever could be, could be an idol for some people. How is that, Pastor Darrell? It can be that way if you elevate those things above God. So, so maybe there's someone who's struggling with setting something aside. And God has shown you that, hey, that's getting in the way. You're not spending time with me the way you used to. You're not praying to me the way you used to. I, I miss you when you get up in the morning, when you used to get up in the morning. And the first thing you say to me is, good morning, Father. Or maybe you feel that impression upon you and there's some things that you need to set aside, some idols that you need to allow to fall so that God can truly reign supreme with no challengers. You see the theme of the entire study in 1 Samuel. The main thing I, I share with you is, is reaching 
our full potential in Christ. And this is one of the things that we need to do, what we learned today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you are to us. Forgive us, forgive us, Lord, of any idols we put in our lives. For some of us, it's the cell phone. For some of us, it's a girlfriend, boyfriend, children. For some of us, it's a car or a house. For some of us, it's money, career. Or maybe some of us worship ourselves. We just can't stop looking at ourselves in the mirror. So, Lord, we ask for forgiveness and help us to allow those idols to fall. Tear them down, Lord. We ask you to tear them down by the power of your spirit, that all of our attention will be on you. And that you have your way in and through us. And I pray, Lord, for the brothers and sisters who are doing well. And they've already allowed those idols to fall. And they, they put those idols away, Lord. And, Lord, they, they're, they're on fire for you right now. I pray, Lord, that, that you continue to help them to go in the right direction. Bless them, Lord. Bless their walk. Bless the ministry you've given to them. And i also like to pray for anyone who has not repented and received Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. I pray that you would draw them to Jesus tonight. I pray that you would convict them. I pray that you would tug on their hearts and not leave them alone. Remove the blinders, Lord. And may you watch over my brothers and sisters as they leave this, um, this place, but not your presence. Bless them with traveling grace. And Lord, as we get ready to partake of communion, we pray your blessings upon the elements. And we pray, Lord, that before each of us partake of communion, we pray, Father, that we would have that time of self-examination. If there's anything in our hearts that's not of you, that's sin, that we haven't confessed to you yet, I pray that you bring it to our attention and partake with the heart of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, yes, this is time for communion. We have the elements at the front and back. <clears throat> it's a little different for, from how we do it on Sundays, but, of course, the cracker represents the body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ. And as we partake, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. And as I mentioned in the prayer, um, it's a time of self-examination. Um, it's a time that we should be grateful. It's a time that we should um, do it in, in self not in self, but in reverence of him. And so um, just whenever you feel moved, feel free to come to the front or back, get the elements, There's, the cups are stacked, take them back to your seats, pray just between you and the Lord or with your spouse, and then partake, you know, just when you're done with that time of prayer. But I'd like to say thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for your prayers. We love you. May God keep you, may God bless you, and use you in a mighty way. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church, 
how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.